Hello and welcome to We're Watching What? I'm your host Dana, or the DHK as I'm known, and it is the last review episode of 2021. So many things to review. There's the new Adam McKay film, Don't Look Up. There's The Kingsman, which is a prequel in the Kingsman franchise. There's The Lost Daughter with Olivia Coleman. There's the star-studded tragedy of Macbeth. And then there's the documentary Beanie Mania and the new reality show on Netflix, Singles Inferno. First up is Don't Look Up. It's Adam McKay's latest film. It's out on Netflix. And I know a fair number of people have actually already seen this film, but here's what I'm going to say about it. So I think Don't Look Up is a very, very well done and accurate film in terms of how it portrays the absolute stupidity of people in 2021. The film premise is a giant asteroid is coming to Earth and scientists try and warn people about it. And instead of the reaction being something like an Armageddon or a Deep Impact, where it's like, yes, we have to do something about it, or, you know, half the Roland Emmerich films, it, it, any any other film to this point, it's like, okay, let's, we gotta, everyone bandies together and we gotta fight the comet. Nope. This is the 2021 version of that in which half the population probably doesn't believe it because they don't, they can't see it and they don't believe in science. And then, you know, political entities have their own gains, private entities have their own gains. It just, it was so frustrating to watch because it is so accurately done. But I personally, and I don't know about other folks, but I personally am not in a place where I have enough distance from the existing and continuously piling on trauma it is to be alive in the last few years that I can get any sort of enjoyment out of this film. Now, I can objectively admire how accurate it is, but I did not like watching this movie at all. I was very tempted to turn it off at points just because I was like, my body is tensing up just talking about this movie. So it has a huge all-star cast. It's got Leo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, Meryl Streep, Jonah Hill, Kate Blanchett, Tyler Perry, Mark Rylance, Timothy Chalamet, Ron Perlman, Melanie Linsky, Michael Chiklis, Rob Morgan, Himesh Patel. It's got Ariana Grande and Kid Cudi. Like, you know, it has a huge cast. It clearly wants an Oscar also. And... If you were to go back in, let's say humanity does survive for 20, 30, 40 years. You know, if you were to go back in time, I would say this is a really accurate time capsule of what it felt like to be in 2021. And, you know, it's obviously it's skewering the climate crisis. It's skewering the reaction to COVID, all of these things. I felt like it's a liberal leaning skewering um, in a discussion with some peers. Some people weren't as sure which who it's trying to make fun of. And, you know, I do think it's actually trying to poke fun at everyone. But again, I'm not in a place where any of this is funny to me. So I really struggled to watch this film. I know that there are plenty of people who are enjoying it and I, you know, more power to them. But if you're someone who's struggling at present with the ingestion of a continued trauma, this, you might find this, for lack of a better word, very triggering. So I struggle with how to rate it because I didn't like it. I didn't enjoy it. I can appreciate it, but that doesn't mean I enjoyed it. And so I, you know, in maybe 10, 15, 20 years, as I said, I would give this a higher rating. Be like, man, that was so accurate. But right now, I don't want to give it that. So I'm going to give it somewhere in the middle. I'm going to give it three and a half out of five. And again, I, I still give it so much credit for being so accurate down to like super just minute things. Tyler Perry and Kate Blanchett play morning talk show hosts. And just the, the banter between them feels so accurate. It's anyway, three and a half out of five for me. That's sort of a compromise between how traumatizing I find it and how accurate it is. 
I'm going to take a quick break and be right back. And I'm back. The next film I have is called The King's Man. It's a prequel to the Kingsman series, and it's from director-writer Matthew Vaughn, who did the other two. It stars Ray Fiennes, Jaiman Hansu, Gemma Arterton, Reese Ifans, Matthew Good, Tom Hollander, Charles Dance, Daniel Brühl, Stanley Tucci, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, and Harris Dickinson. And I haven't rewatched the original Kingsman films in a little while, but I remember them having a sense of buoyancy and being fun, and the action was always super stylized. I just remember having a good time at them. This one, something is very missing from it. It takes place right before World War One, and it has all these political figures. And I remember the other ones have larger political plots involved, but this one just feels, I don't know, there's something that's bogging it down. You know, I think Ray Fiennes does a fine job. I wouldn't necessarily peg him as action hero. I think he does a great job as M in the James Bond movies. Like, that seems suited to current Ray Fiennes. You know, maybe in his youth, this would have made more sense, but he's playing an older gentleman, you know, involved in this stuff. Uh, Harris Dickinson is fine. You know, he's really good in a film called Beach Rats, but he doesn't carry this film the way I hoped he would, or I don't even know if I hoped he would, but I just expected, hey, if you're going to make a prequel, and, you know, the, the other ones have a bunch of really young, attractive, you know, popular people, so my assumption is if you were going to make a prequel, you're trying to elevate somebody else to that status, but I just don't know if they chose the right person and the right role for this. I could see Harris Dickinson more being like, a Dunkirk. He may have actually already been in Dunkirk. I don't know. But there's something about this film. That I feel like they want it to be a little more serious than the other two. But the defining thing about the other two is a sense of taking the secret spy sort of James Bond trope and then, you know, adding a, a tiny bit of absurd humor to it. I just, just thinking about the end of the second Kingsman film with like Elton John and stuff, you know, tiny spoiler there. But that to me was fun and absurd or or Mark Strong's character in it. Like those moments to me are surreal and absurd, but also great and, and weirdly also somehow grounded in the world they've built. This film has none of that. And also, there's a weird semi-almost apologist tone to it for imperialism and colonialism. Like, Ray Fiennes plays the Duke of Oxford, who, you know, this is a story about the founding of the Kingsman group. And, you know, it's it's weird because there's all these inserted lines about basically saying, all white colonizers aren't terrible. But then at the same time, you've got Jaiman Hansu as his essentially manservant, you know. It just... It's at odds with itself. I don't know what it wanted to be. The action doesn't feel exciting. So even if you're a fan of the franchise, I don't think you need to see this movie. I also don't think the universe the King's been set up like needs you to know the origins of the group. We have been conditioned so much at this point to just accept like, ah, yes, secret society who tries to save the world. Great, done. We know what you're doing here. I don't need the backstory. So so for The King's Man, I'm only going to give it 2.5 out of 5. It wasn't fun to watch for very different reasons that Don't Look Up wasn't fun to watch. You know, at least Don't Look Up. I'm like, okay, fine. It's really good. I'm just not in a place where I can ingest it. The King's Man, I was like, this is, I don't even know what this is. The next film I have is called The Lost Daughter. This is another Netflix film. It's written and directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, the actress, now director and writer. And it stars Olivia Colman, which is really the big draw here, right? It also has Dakota Johnson, Peter Sarsgaard, Ed Harris, Paul Mescal, and Olivia Colman plays a woman vacationing on her own. And then she sort of forms a relationship with Dakota Johnson's character, who's a young mother and her daughter. And then we we get flashbacks to Olivia Colman's life as a mother. And I I think the thing I did like the most about this film is I feel like we rarely get films about imperfect women that aren't aggressively judgmental. Just because you've become a mother doesn't mean that you don't have ambitions beyond that. That yes, I'm sure I, I can, I'm not a mother, so I can't say this firsthand, but my assumption is that your life, yes, a big part of it is now going to be your kids, but the rest of your life isn't shouldn't be required 
to cease. You should be allowed to have ambitions. You should be allowed to have a deep inner life. You know, if you are in a partnership, you would hope that it's an actual partnership. And the idea is not that you are just carrying the load and that motherhood is your one and only job now. So I did like the exploration of Olivia Coleman's character struggle. Uh, she, the younger version of her is played by Jesse Buckley, who I think does a very good job. But I was almost like, is Olivia Coleman old enough to need somebody younger to play her in flashbacks? I don't know about that. But either way, that's the way they chose to do it. So I, I credit to Jesse Buckley, who does a really great job in those moments, dealing with the pressures of motherhood. It's not a light movie. It's not, you know, a it's an awards bait movie. And that there's just a tone to a lot of them that... It's kind of a downer. I'm like, can we not have an awards film that has peaks and valleys and all these things? And it, you know, it, just because something's about a serious dark story shouldn't automatically make it awards bait. I think the film is also a little uneven in that it sets up these major expectations. And then I don't know if it quite delivers on them, but I think all of the actresses do. A, the actors are fine too. I don't know if they're as much the centerpiece of it, obviously, but it's a good film, you know, it comes out on, it's not, I wouldn't watch it on New Year's Eve. It's not a celebratory film. I'd watch it maybe on like a rainy weekend or something like, but I think it's a relatively strong first outing as a director. Uh, you know, it's, I don't know if you can go wrong with Olivia Coleman is the other thing. It's a, she's certainly helping out here, but if you're in the right mood, I think it's worth a watch. I'm going to give it 3.8 out of 5. And then the next film I have is The Tragedy of Macbeth. It's the end of the year. You know, it's all the last awards bait are cramming in before awards deadlines happen. Uh, I was, you know, aside from The King's Man, which is clearly not going to get anything except for maybe a Rousey. It's written and directed by Joel Cohen. Obviously, it is based on the Shakespeare play Macbeth. And it stars Denzel Washington as Macbeth, Francis McDormand as Lady Macbeth. You've got Corey Hawkins as Macduff, Harry Melling as Malcolm, Brendan Gleeson as King Duncan. And... I will say, as someone who at one point read the play, I was very lost in this. And, and you know, I have not read it in a very long time. But I think one of the big challenges is, so it feels like a hybrid thing, right? It feels like a play and the setting is a play and it has been adapted somewhat to the screen. And I respect and admire what Joel Cohen's doing there. You know, the sets are feel like they're on a soundstage, but they don't feel cheap on a soundstage. Like the sets extend beyond, but they feel as close as it could be to being in a play that has been transported onto a screen, if that makes sense. And, and I, you know, it's clearly very intentional. I think there are a lot of clever tricks with some of the storytelling and like the witches, for example, but... The problem with, and this might just be the problem with Shakespeare in general, especially when you're interpreting it, I think the screen creates a barrier. And this is, a, it's a very whispery interpretation of Macbeth. And so everyone's talking pretty fast. Everyone's kind of whispering at points. And because it's not an actual stage whisper, because you're not an audience in a live stage, a lot of it got lost for me. And maybe, you know, maybe it's my sound setup. Maybe it's whatever. But I... Don't think so. So I'm going to go ahead and say, if you are already inclined to like this, if you're a really big Shakespeare fan, you know, this is a strong retelling of it. And I do think it's an interesting retelling. The way it sets up the blending sort of cinema and stagecraft is very clever. But if you were someone who does not find Shakespeare to be the most accessible, even in the best of times, like thinking about even Denzel Washington's own career with Shakespeare on screen, you know, I haven't rewatched it in a very long time, so I could be wrong about this actually, but I feel like even his performance in Much Ado About Nothing is much more accessible. Because I also think something like Much Ado About Nothing is 
trying to be slightly more accessible. I don't think Joel Cohen is concerned about that in his telling of the tragedy of Macbeth. So I know there's going to be a huge subset of people who are just super into this and are like, oh my God, it's the second coming, you know, all this stuff. I I think it's a nice way to preserve Shakespeare on screen. I actually thought it was going to be very long and it ended up being sub two hours, which is refreshing, honestly, considering how long some of the movies I've been watching recently have been. But maybe this one actually could have used a little bit more breathing room. So my recommendation would be if you're already inclined to like it, if you're a Shakespeare fan, it's going to be for you. I think you'll enjoy it and appreciate it. But if you are not, if there's been a barrier to entry to you in the past, this is not going to be the one that makes you go, ah, yeah, really dig that Shakespeare guy. So I fall somewhere in the middle. I'm going to give it a 3.7 out of 5. I wasn't team absolutely loved it. I'm team, again, going back to the first film I reviewed, don't look up. You know, team can appreciate it, but didn't have a good time watching it. Frances McDormand, I gotta say, steals the show. Best character in it. Her Lady Macbeth is just really great. Uh, Denzel is, I don't know, I haven't loved Denzel's performances the last few years. I don't know if this was the right role for him, but, you know, whatever. Or if it was the way that the text is intentionally being performed by everyone that just didn't mesh for me. So 3.7 out of, so a 3.7 out of 5 for Tragedy of Macbeth. And then the next thing I want to mention, it's it's very brief. I'm not even going to do a full-on review of it, but there's a documentary out on HBO Max called Beanie Mania, and it is about the Beanie Baby craze of the 90s. And while it is not the most brilliantly done documentary, I do think it will give you either PTSD or nostalgia or both. You know, if you lived through that time and you felt the joy of holding one of those tiny hand-sized bean toys in your hands, or if your parents got them for you, or if you were a parent who got them for, you know, I watched it actually with my family. Uh, My mother spent the entire time screaming at the TV that she hated everyone in it because they caused her so much pain in the 90s. So, you know, beware of that as a possible viewing hazard. But it does a good job of time capsuling that moment in time and watching how the Beanie Babies rose to prominence. It's told through a couple of very avid adult beanie collectors. You know, there's a bunch of women in Chicago who claim responsibility for causing beanie mania, essentially. And I I believe them. I, I think, you know, it's their fault. So if you want someone to blame, it might be them. Obviously, also Ty Warner, the founder of the Ty Corporation. But anyway, Beanie Mania on HBO Max. Again, not a groundbreaking documentary, but If you lived through that time, it will bring back lots of memories for you. And then the very last thing I want to talk about this week, just because I didn't love all the movies and I wanted I wanted to end the year on something that I find enjoyable. There's a new show on Netflix called Singles Inferno, and I have to give credit to my friend Jane for telling me about it. So it's a Korean show. And yes, I know we've had a lot of popularity with those lately, and I I appreciate that we are opening our eyes to the world of subtitles. It's not a highbrow show. It's very much an amalgamation of, I think, a lot of the Netflix reality shows we've seen, a lot of other reality show premises we've seen. So it's a bunch of ridiculously attractive people trapped on an island together. So you've got like a little bit of survivor, a little, it's, you know, a little less too hot to handle because they're a, they're allowed to interact physically, but I don't think maybe necessarily, and I could be wrong here, the, um, the PDA and like hookup culture is as prevalent in Korea. I could be wrong. I'm only a few episodes in, so it could get steamier, but it's also a little bit like Love Island, a little bit like Take a pinch of Love Island, take a pinch of Terrace House, because it does have a bunch of commentators who I find very funny. They're very earnest, but it's just, it's funny to have additional insight into it. And and basically, a bunch of very hot singles are put on an island. Uh, if they, it's called the Inferno. If they couple up, they are allowed to go to a place called Paradise, which is a very nice hotel, and, you know, learn more about each other. When they're on the island, they can't tell each other their ages or occupations. 
which is a very specific thing not to be allowed to tell someone, but I'm going to guess it's a cultural thing where like this is an important aspect of your dating life. And so revealing that is almost as personal as revealing other aspects of your life. Like they can tell each other their names, but <laughs> they can't tell each other the other stuff. Either way, it's very, it, it simultaneously feels very wholesome, but still gives you those dopamine kicks. But all those other reality competition dating shows are, you know, it's also got like hints of The Bachelor slash Bachelorette and that they, you know, give each other notes that says they're interested in each other or they, you know, they're matching ceremonies. It's just... It's a bunch of all that stuff rolled into one. Do I also have to acknowledge that like all of these dating shows, it's hugely problematic and very shallow? Yes, that's a that's a given going into it, but I don't think it's fair to hold this one to necessarily a different standard than we hold Western dating shows and, and this type of mindless fare. I do think if you are inclined to like that type of show, you should absolutely give Singles Inferno a chance. It's out on Netflix. That has been it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you could leave us a rating or a review or even consider subscribing.